0: We are all imperiled by the climate emergency, but some of us are clearly more threatened than others. Human and non-human animals and entire ecosystems are under duress. It's hard to know exactly where to place the emphasis in sketching the contours of an ongoing struggle for revolutions in energy use that could prevent the devastation of runaway global heating, but acknowledging that the impact is extremely uneven might be the most imperative. Because there's an urgent need for us to reject the reigning energy regime of fossil fuel extraction, a group of authors and academics recently got together to imagine pathways out of our current impasse. The outcome of that meeting was this six-episode podcast series. In this installment of Volatile Trajectories, you'll hear from Reese Williams, Stacey Balkin, and Tommy Davis about how their hope for revolutionary forms of infrastructure to guard against disastrous futures and quickly accelerating climate collapse hinges in certain ways on both an aesthetic education that centralizes conversations about more hopeful futures, to quote Stacy, and moving beyond merely imagining alternatives to doing the political work necessary to bring them into being. Uh, but let me give you some background on Tommy Reese and Stacy. Tommy Davis is an associate professor of English at Ohio State University where he teaches courses in modern and contemporary literature, environmental humanities, and coordinates study abroad programs to southern Louisiana and Antarctica. He's the author of The Extinct Scene, Late Modernism, and Everyday Life, and he's currently finishing his second book, Unnatural Attachments, Aesthetic Education and Ecological Crisis. Reese Williams is a lecturer in energy and environmental humanities at the University of Glasgow. He works on the intersection of narrative and infrastructure in future making, especially with respect to food and energy. He has written extensively on solar infrastructures and imaginaries, most recently in the journal South Atlantic Quarterly and Open Library for the Humanities. And Stacey Balkin is an associate professor of environmental literature and humanities at Florida Atlantic University where she also serves as an affiliate faculty member for the university's Center for Peace, Justice, and Reconciliation. She's the author of Rogues in the Post-Colony, narrating extraction and itinerancy in India, and co-editor with Swaralipinandi of oil fictions, world literature, and our contemporary petrosphere. This conversation is a lively one, recorded at a fairly noisy bistro, with all of the sounds of people playing pool and children's shoes squeaking. They seem to harness that energy in the space to engage with questions around how we've been sold a certain narrative about the inevitability of fossil fuels. Tommy talks about how it might be the responsibility of the energy humanities to expose that configuration as historical and work to unmake it. But at the same time, Reese points out that it's not as simple as just undoing a narrative and exposing a history of manipulation. We have to engage with the degree to which petro-cultural ideology is now a firmly material thing, solidified as a social and empirical fact. This makes it much harder to dislodge, but identifies the enemy of energy transition in a more substantive way.
1: I think a lot of people in the humanities have been wondering how we make climate change and energy transition our job And this has given rise to a lot of special issues of journals, a lot of books that are about pedagogical theory, and then the rudiments of what it looks like. But we have talked about how that conversation and that action maybe looks a little bit differently depending on where you are. So I've been curious about you, Stacey, and what it's like to teach energy and environmental humanities in South Florida where you have all kinds of racial and class issues on top of the ecological crisis, and you just went through a hurricane. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what it looks like from your vantage point in South Florida.
2: Yeah, sure, that's a great question. Um, Of course, Hurricane Ian left unprecedented, and I don't use that word lightly, I feel like it's often used lightly, unprecedented devastation to much of the state. Um, In the far southeastern corridor, we were mostly spared, um, which is often not the case. Um, but as sort of these cyclonic phenomena become both um, more severe and more frequent, um, we're also noticing a sort of westward shift, so the past several have been kind of moving away from the Atlantic into the Gulf. Um, Florida is now seen by many as a kind of laboratory for the radical transformation of the academy um, desired by Republican legislators across the United States, right? So. What we're seeing are sort of successive um, bills being passed to effectively monitor um, faculty free speech. Um, so, most recently, is Bill HB7, which is popularly known as the Stop Woke Act, um, passed, um, which effectively mandates the surveillance of instructors, um, so too the curtailing of what we're allowed to discuss. And so, for somebody like me who teaches climate justice and intersectional justice, it's been particularly difficult, and and you know even as, as we do this podcast, I, I'm admittedly trepidatious um, because the consequences of speaking about certain topics publicly um, are materially um, quite quite devastating. Um, but that said, of course, what I also find really important about the question about teaching what we do in South Florida um, is that you know while. My university is in Boca Raton, which is one of the wealthiest communities in the United States, and in Palm Beach County. I think you know Trump's hometown and, and one of the wealthiest counties. Um, I also teach in a majority-minority institution. Um, over sixty percent of our students are also first-generation students, and they don't come from Boca. They come from areas of Miami um, that are you know severely economically depressed, um, and they're like sort of largely Latinx neighborhoods and. Um, Haitian neighborhoods where they sort of like don't have the material resources um, that are available in places like Boca. Um, but what I was gonna say as well, because of the sort of horrific economic policies that have essentially created a kind of apartheid in Florida between the sort of super rich and, and these marginalized um, immigrant communities, um, what we also see a lot of journalists refer to this as sort of like the, the two Floridas that emerge after every hurricane. So mm-hmm. Um, this kind of horrifyingly racialized landscape. Um, what we see too is that with these sort of increased weather phenomena, the sort of um, the kind of uneven disaster that's born after these weather events is, is increasingly horrifying. Um, and so, you know, you'll see, for example, um, you know, in, in Miami Beach, this like really really robust um, disaster infrastructure, right, with these like gleaming heavy hurricane shutters and all this stuff. Um, and then you see folks in a place like Liberty City in Miami, where a lot of my students commute from, you know, like particle boards stuck on, on windows that like don't even remotely approach the regulations put forth after Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, and then adding to this, we have our the first governor to acknowledge climate change, but the resilience plan is essentially to to build walls to protect new luxury developments Mm. so this is why you see like the the death toll in lee county a few weeks ago was was horrific because there's there's no actual resilience plan other than protecting the super rich and the further development in these precarious areas Um, so anyway yeah so for me and for my students um teaching this in south florida is like almost a daily exercise in the absurd you know it's like sort of it's like you know it's like the existential despair of living 40 miles north of miami which is swiftly sinking because it's on porous limestone and being inundated by sea level rise and this poor you know and this uneven infrastructure all of that colludes to create you know complete disaster so it's it's kind of horrifying but um as i think we'll talk about momentarily um this is why i also favor kind of an aesthetic education um that centralizes conversations about more hopeful features. Um, And so I guess maybe with that said, I was thinking, like, Tommy, we had been talking about attachments, right? I mean, I guess we've all been talking quite a bit about features and sort of speculating on on, on possible features and, of course, features that don't just reek of this kind of post-oil doom, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is is the question, isn't it? Um, So when we talk, I think, in our spaces of energy, humanities, and environmental humanities, a lot of what we do, regardless of the content of our discussion, we are thinking about relationality. And so that goes under the name, sometimes, of metabolism or entanglement. The way that we, we as scholars, I would say artists and activists that are affiliated with these spheres, the way we imagine human and non-human relations, the way we imagine individual and system relations, So how things connect, what is the relay between your action and it's effect somewhere else. How do we think about the goods that we consume for breakfast, your yogurt that comes from one part of the world, or your milk or your coffee that comes from somewhere else so that on your plate you have a manifestation the global economy, mm. right? You um, can see the relationships in you the can in see, the But then also are, because they're fetishized, right, these relationships are concealed. Mm. But I was finding myself, as I was thinking about these problems of energy crisis and activism, I was finding myself unable to think about what it meant to care about something. And attachment became a word or a concept for me when I was looking at the artwork of, a, of an artist, an indigenous artist named Chinookwa Hanska Luger, who was at the Standing Rock protest. He's based in New Mexico. He was raised in Standing Rock via travel path. And when he was there as part of the protest, one of his art projects was to make mirror shields. And he did a YouTube video
2: showing people how to make these mirror shields.
1: just want to help protect the people and so I designed a shield made out of relatively thin wood and a reflective surface usually a mylar or a vinyl that's mirrored and um, and I made a video and shared it on on social media the shield demonstrates that a single person can buy one sheet of, of wood and cut it into six shields and those six shields would stand on the front line protecting those in prayer, right? And behind that line stands the camp where there are thousands of people. And then downriver there are eight million people. And so this is how one person can help protect eight million people. And he shows you in short order how to take cheap materials, make a mirror shield, and then ship it up to Standing Rock. And the people at Standing Rock would use them to shield a prayer service. And the prayer circle would be shielding the thousands of people that were in the encampments. And the idea, which they took from the Euromaidan protest in Ukraine, you take a reflective shield, in Ukraine they just ripped mirrors off of the bathrooms and took them out to the police. You show the police and also the um, vigilantes that were were up there, and you hold them up in front of the police so they see themselves enacting violence. Mm So there's a mechanism of protection, but also reflecting state violence back on itself. But for Luger, I think he says, when we all watch that video, and we make those shields and we send them out, we are now part of a process in which the people in Standing Rock protect the other people who are protecting a river, which provides water for thousands thousands of people. So he broadens out the attachment that we have, that I have in Ohio, I develop an attachment by making one of these and sending it to somebody, at standing rock, right? So that this is a very material way in which my care for the kind of world they're calling into being in the, in the encampments can can manifest, right?
2: Oh, no, I was thinking about like sort of the, the ways in which the reflective mechanism is like transmitting these modes of care and extending community, is that...? sort of or
1: maybe not if the police are still getting the hell out of the protesters but i think the people that are dispersed that are watching standing rock and want somehow to be involved in that is not only a protest movement and a saying no to fossil capital but also in miniature crafting another kind of world of solidarity and engaging in that world making that was unfolding in the camps it is a way to be part of that making right so solidarity has a relational component to it so it from that artwork and my engagement with it I started thinking of attachment as a way to approach some of these questions which meant for me ideas have histories right so I wanted to know the history of the term attachment unfortunately its history is based on psychoanalysis which is not my my bag, but I read it. I read it. Any, I read it anyway. And it, interestingly, the seeds of attachment theory emerged in 1939, when the British government has has an evacuation policy where they're moving children out of areas that will be bombed. And as they begin taking these children and shuttling them out to other locations, a couple of psych, psychologists that we know now, John Bowlby and D.W. Winnicott, write a letter and they say they are observing disorders in children who've been separated from their mother. After the war, both of those psychologists become famous for developing attachment theory. And when you read John Bowlby's trilogy, which I don't recommend anyone do, when you read the trilogy, what is interesting about about it is that he understands attachment as both a material relation that the child has to the caregiver. So breastfeeding, cradling, holding, presence the infant needs that to be alive but also the other part of that is there is identity formation I found interesting in that model the material and then we could call it the immaterial right or the material and the subjective if we scale that up from parent-child and psychoanalysis I'm less comfortable Planetary crisis, where I'm mm-hmm. probably more comfortable. The material right becomes food, air, water, housing, transportation, yeah. mm-hmm. energy, the things you need to live, and then what you care about, what you're attached to, mobility, travel, whatever your version of the good life is, is bound up with that. So there is a model we can transport and modify from the psychoanalytic pairing of parent mm-hmm. and child to a broader planetary system. And I think this gives us a way to start thinking about how we imagine futures that don't just say, well, we won't have more carbon in the atmosphere, you won't have to worry about storms. But we can talk to people and say what you care about, having clean air, having beautiful places for your kids to run around in and play. I think attachment is a relation that allows us to begin thinking about how to have those conversations. And for me, and I think in the example of Bluebird, the importance of art and imagining different kinds of attachments and enacting them in the best case scenarios.
3: So, I think maybe this is it's wrong. Like I feel like what you're saying is like it's almost like who you are is predicated or, or in a relationship with like what you do and the stuff that you use to do it with, right? So the idea that you know everyone that, you know, everyone likes to, to, to have the freedom to move around somehow, but it depends on the ways in which you use to do that. The, 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 the particular qualities of that, of that like desire for you. So if you are, you know, currently, like, we have this whole desire to move around and we have, like, autonomy of cars and so on, and we're all really attached mm-hmm. to that, and, and it, that means that, like, ideas, I mean, you see it in car outlets all the time, right, like, the ideas of freedom and autonomy are somehow in the shape of a car for us right? and in the shape of like roads winding through mountains or mm-hmm. you know cities weirdly divorced of any other traffic yes. except for like <laughs> the car that's like zooming around and we need to or we need is strong but like there are different ways of having the same desires but with different material shapes attached to them like the bike the, you know,
2: that, right? that. also ways in which we can also replace right the material anchors of some of those Mm. desires, right? Mm -hmm. So, as we sort of move from thinking about kind of our entanglement in fossil capital to cultivating attachments to something else, maybe we can also think about like... um, What's fossil (laughs) capital? Oh yes, of course, I'm so sorry. Um, I guess we'd say fossil capitalism is the form of political economy whereby we commodify fossil fuels, right? for consumption, um, dependent upon what we often term in the energy humanities, a kind of resource logic, right? Whereby we reduce most of planetary life to the commodity form, but here specifically, we're talking about the fossil commodity, is that? So we like, that, I mean, that was way better yeah. than I could have Oh, okay. Done. So, <laughs>
3: I'm glad you had that one. So, so like, we, we see the natural world as like stuff to be used. Yeah, yeah, kind of, Like exactly. used and sold and, okay. Right,
2: right. Um, I guess when you said the, the bicycle, I just thought about how, you know, if, If we're looking here to sort of cultivate attachment to a different um, infrastructural imaginary, right, to what extent do we have to also think about, well, gosh, do we want to just sort of take all of those desires and abstract freedom in all of that um, and sort of kind of just, I don't know, you know, not necessarily um, transform the sort of material infrastructure and think about the ways in which we cultivate new desires, or do we simply want to sort of, you know, I guess, replace the fuel that enables our current desires. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Can
1: I give you an example of how this has happened? Yes. Yeah. In the 1930s, Shell developed a public relations campaign, and they decided to use modernist artists, and avant-garde artists, for a poster campaign, for guidebooks, and for their cinema they had a whole shell film division and their idea which was quite explicit is you take modern artists so for example Vanessa Bell who is Virginia Woolf's sister, she was a painter she painted these posters that would show in pointillist fashion a nice idyllic landscape in Britain, and it would say see Britain first on shell there are no highways, mm. there are no cars there's just beautiful streams and mountains and mm. this mm. cabin and the idea is you, as a viewer, are attached to that kind of landscape mm-hmm. and the pleasure and leisure of being in that landscape. Without showing you a car or a road, the idea is that the fossil fuel will enable you to better access it. Mm-hmm. When they did films...
3: And it does, right? Sorry to interrupt. But it does. Yeah, yeah. That's like the hard part of all of this that we have to talk about sometimes. Like it does enable you to do that. Of course it yeah. Does. Yeah. 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 Having a car is awesome. But it wasn't yet,
1: petroleum wasn't yet the dominant fuel source, right? They're developing an imaginary for people that have attachments to things to then entangle them with petroleum. And there is this wonderful, short, and quite successful film by a New Zealand artist called Lin Lai, and it's called Birth of the Robot. And it maps out for you this petro-future. And at the very end of it, the planet turns, and you see on the planet... Um, roads and trees. So you basically see a highway infrastructure emerge since 1936, and the shadow of the robot, which was Shell's symbol in the 1930s, is hovering over the planet as it turns. And you watch in short order as it gets re terraformed for petroleum. And they seem to know that you could take things that people were attached to, yoke it to fossil fuels, and make people desire them. And want that world not because they cared about oil because they cared about the things that would be available with more ease or greater quantity or quality because of it right so they knew you take attachments and entangle it with a fossil fuel energy system and now we hear from Exxon or Chevron or whoever when they tell us that you can get off of fossil fuels but say goodbye to heating say goodbye to travel and seeing your parents that, that was generated in the 1930s quite consciously. And they brought attachment and entanglement together. And now they're telling us they're completely interlaced. And if you get rid of your entanglement and fossil fuels, everything you care about yeah. is going to wither and die. And that's where we have to come in and expose that configuration as historical. The attachments exist and they can be remade and unmade. And being who we are, we should be the people to articulate Mm -hmm. new kinds of modalities for imagining attachments and
3: new kinds of material infrastructures. It's It's tricky though, right? Because, do you know the Futurama movie? The General Motors movie is um, the World Fair in New York, I think, 1939. So like in that film, right, you have um, like highways know this, you have yeah. these like freeways and highways mm-hmm. and, and there's this voiceover talking and it's, it starts with this like really long kind of progress narrative right and it's like people landing on the new shore it's very colonial like and then there's like developments and slowly technology gets better and then all of a sudden you have like freeways and highways and suburbs and all of these things weren't really a thing and they, 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 they imagine it into being in order to sell cars as well right? And, and, and they imagine this
0: whole world uh,
3: organized in a, in a particular way you know, around like, the, the possibilities that oil would give you. Like it would allow you to live in the suburbs. It brings together like, city and country. right? You can live in, this, in, the, in the countryside, have access to the city. All of this stuff is like, underlying, kind of escape the city kind of vibes as well. Right? Um, but it didn't exist at the time, and now it 100% exists. And you know, even more so, it's right? even mm. more inter- 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 interlaced and complicated than that kind of picture showed you at the time so I guess my question uh, or my, my, my concern I suppose right is yes we can expose the, the fact that this is like a historical narrative in some sense but it has also in a very real sense come to pass so you know we're not just dealing with stories now we're dealing with like a world that is very that is built like that, right like undoing that is a material thing not yes. just a kind of story yeah, thing. Yeah. I like guess you know um, I wanted, to, so I want, I want to ask oh, you something. Can, right? can I just say something? Wrong yeah, right for, here, sure, for sure. I mean,
2: sure. undoing that is also asking us to think about class in a very real way, right? Because to what extent does, does you know, the shell in the 1930s, right, uh, like simply, you know, make explicit the ways in which fossil fuels enable the pastoral mode, right? Which had. What does that mean? Um, oh, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> so which is just a, a movement um, in in the arts and and uh, visual and literary arts. Right, whereby we project a kind of ideal landscape, um, mm. one that is effectively impossible, one that is produced by effectively invisible labor. Right. Mm. So, I mean, you mentioned the country and the city. I really hate to cite Williams, because well, I think that the country in the city is That's Raymond is, Williams. Raymond voices. Williams, thank you. Is <laughs> is such it is okay to such, cite Raymond Williams. It, I, I know. No, he is a great. No, I know. Um, oh gosh, I know, of course he is. Um, but the but the country in the city is is of course um, somewhat provincial, and it's kind of you know in its archive right um so we're talking about greenwashing in a particular way and that and i'll 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 stop but but all i'm saying is that what's also kind of interesting is that that the fossil fuel industry however ironically seems to have made explicit the ways in which the erasure of labor makes possible certain kinds of certain kinds of certain ways of being in the world so the pastoral mode was enabled by all of the labor that you don't see, right? There's maybe you know the little sheep in the distance, or you know, but you don't see the wheat threshers, you don't see the sh- you don't see any of them, right? So um, in the same way that you know our, our contemporary petroscape, right, is made possible by a labyrinthine network of invisible labor, you know, what what's so difficult about what we call like reading for oil um, is that it, petroleum is everywhere and nowhere. Right. I mean, I, I'm looking around at this table on our laptops and the sound machine, like everything, you know, um, and so everything like that makes like sort of the, the trappings of petromodernity, right, all yeah. of it was made possible by the substance that, and I shouldn't say we, that, that consumers... Yeah. Primarily in the global north cannot see right. So, Obviously, it's not invisible yeah, 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 to producers. Um, so, so it's yeah.
3: like we have the, we have this picture of like a really lovely suburban life, and, and there's fields and all that stuff. And what you can't see underneath is the like massive machine that's like extracting yeah. and consuming and
2: distributing. Yeah, and it's, yeah. It's like, like
3: churning industrial. Right, for sure. Like yeah. I feel like this conversation it comes round to something really interesting in terms of what you were talking about in the two Floridas, right? And, and I'm a big believer that like communities are shaped by their kind of relationship to, like, I would call it the infrastructure of their world, but you know, either way, the world that they live in, you know, so it's a kind of yes. back and forth process, and, and, and the shape of things is, is dependent upon those relationships. In the, uh, in, in the kind of two Florida example, I think that's really clear, right? Yeah. Because you mm-hmm. have got that word that you use, that word, right? You've got a hurricane that yeah. hits the state. Volume. And what you have is two, let's call it for simplicity, two separate infrastructures, right? They're like rich mm-hmm. infrastructures and, yeah. and the infrastructures of the poor. Like the same exact thing has completely different effects on people because of the relationship between them and the hurricane, which is literally made up of the infrastructures. Yeah. And you can see like the inequality in the stuff in the infrastructure.
2: Which is why I think, I mean, I wanted to ask you about this, about like you know, what we really need to be talking about are sort of revolutionary forms of infrastructure. How do we envision infrastructures whereby you don't have these two really sort of polarized experiences, right, yeah. when the waters rise or the next cyclone arrives, right? The thing so that I was to ask you
0: is. Was-
3: you're teaching the students
2: yeah.
3: who have mostly like one kind of relationship mm-hmm. to the cycle, let's say, right? Yeah. Um, what's it like teaching those students with that, with that very specific material relationship, yeah. right? Like a real-world thing, yeah. ine- experiences of inequality and that kind of thing, which play out in that way. How does that play in the classroom?
2: Yeah, I mean, frankly, it's really difficult. Um, you know, my students are sort of like alternating between, you know, like vast existential despair and then like sort of the minutiae of the everyday you know i've had a student last semester in my climate fiction class actually say you know and i i not to, i'm citing her so i can i can curse she said why the fuck should i care about my math final when the, when the world is ending you know um and so yeah and so in this specific um context it's, it's really quite difficult because, so, so last semester I taught a class on climate fiction and we read, as I think many of us teach this novel, right, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. So I'm, I'm teaching this to you know young women of color in, in South Florida, um, not only 40 miles north of Miami, but also 20 miles east of um, the, the, where like Big Sugar has some of its largest stakes in our In our state, um, where they routinely burn their fields with with formaldehyde, Mm. which has caused the highest cancer rates in the states, Mm. particularly amongst communities of color, Um, so that's happening as well. And I'm teaching a book that is set in 2024, Mm, right? Um, And so the other thing about teaching it is that we're constantly inundated, right, with sort of news of you know the impending apocalypse, at you know on the shore that's less than a mile from our campus. Right, um, and reading this novel in which you know that apocalypse is in fact happening next year. A really wonderful thinker who organized our uh, Petrocultures conference in, in Stavanger, Norway, uh, Brookdale, He used the term radical optimism, mm-hmm. and I really love that that idea. And I really, you know, I'm really, as so many of us are, I'm, I'm just exhausted by the kind of You know, techno dystopian doom of conventional climate fiction. Mm. I find that it has very little utility Mm. um, in terms of, um, I think, you know, obviously averting planetary disaster, but very little utility in terms of like any sort of productive thinking Mm. about the future. I find it to be offensive to, um, you know, the formerly and presently colonized who have been experiencing environmental apocalypse for half a millennia if not longer, right? Right. It's just totally unproductive and I have no use for it at Mm -hmm. this point. I, I also find problematic that lots of folks think about some of the more kind of radically optimistic fictions mm. as somehow, um, you know, irresponsibly utopian or unrealistic. Right. So this past semester, we, I, there are a couple of things that I taught that I found super useful. On the one hand, Rakea Hossein's um, novella Ladyland um, from 1905, um, which is a solar-powered um, kind of collectivist utopia of sorts um so too the collection multi-species cities solar punk urban futures mm-hmm. and i found that teaching these like, radically optimistic um solar punk features um which Lisa, i'm going to make you to define this if that's okay what is solar punk? <laughs> um,
3: okay so yeah so, solar punk is uh, a kind of growing subgenre of uh, science fiction but also there's a lot of fantasy elements in there as well often and it's interested in depicting hopeful futures, usually with renewable energy, typically solar, kind of underpinnings. Yeah, so. And I think broadly characterized by a sense of like light, harmony, connection, community, that kind yeah. of thing.
2: But but I find that teaching those fictions is, is really productive and really useful um, because it does, in fact, imagine you know a much more positive future and one powered by renewables. Um, but so too presents. What I see is like actual, like viable infrastructural alternatives to a dystopian present um, with a, a failing grid. They effectively document actually existing infrastructural possibilities. Can
1: I ask one thing yeah, though? yeah, yeah, for sure. So you you talked about teaching Octavia Butler. Then you said you find dystopias offensive and useless. And then you talked about <laughs> solar punk. I too teach Octavia Butler yeah. all the time. I taught it this semester, and a student raised his hand and said, This is just a question, is everything you read going to be depressing? <laughs> and I took that as a mandate for rethinking how and why I teach yeah. that novel. So why why should we teach this book? Because it is a health game. And the best thing that happens is they set up a community at the end, and when you read the next novel, that's not a great idea either, right? Sure, sure. So I thought, why should we teach this book? And one of the reasons that you should teach it, I think, is that part of what that book models in two ways, in content, it is trying to think about how you get new ideas and principles, because you need those to have different imaginations and communities. Earthseed is an adolescent writing in her journal, trying to imagine new kinds of, commu- new principles for a new community that will come and take material shape. And the book is sort of modeling for us how you can begin to tell a story about the future that people will be attached to, so the maybe the utopic impulse of that book is, Actually, a pedagogical one. How do you begin to marshal resources from the past to give you some idea of how to tell stories, develop models for the future? And I read that book and started thinking about Walter's Benjamin. And the idea that we look back at the past and look at those past objects and find in them what their utopian impulses were that never came to pass. And how do you animate and vivify those in the present to crack open the temporality of the now for something else? And what if we then read Octavia Bedler and you read Frederick Douglass alongside it? not as a historical anchor, but as a utopian, <laughs> utopian pathway into something else. How do you vivify Frederick Douglass to think about a climate future that maybe addresses some of these racial antagonisms and class antagonisms that you're talking about? If we want to think yeah. about a climate future that's about freedom and autonomy, what is, who's a better writer of freedom
3: than Frederick Douglass? Like the thing I want, I want to I, want to, I want to say to that, like, a, Like. A, like. I want to push, not push back on it, but I want to build on it, I guess, or say something like that. But before I do that, I want you to um, explain a little bit what you mean by taking a utopian, and I mean like really pragmatically explain it, like what do you mean by taking a utopian impulse from something in the past and using it to crack open the temporality of the present, especially that last phrase. So, so I'll, I'll do this in, in the
1: terms of the novel. So... so <laughs> For Benjamin and I and I think for Octavia Butler in that book, you go back and look at the past and in every moment of the past when something evolves in the world, for Benjamin it's iron, right? When iron comes into the world, there are fantasies that are documented in text of new architecture which would liberate people in all kinds of ways from labor, from want. We know that did not come to pass, but the emergence of that object generated utopian imaginations that were then crushed under the march of capital. What would it mean to go back to that and take those fantasies and utopian imaginations that did not become realized, what would it mean to take them seriously? In the novel, Lauren Olamina is developing a kind of secular theology with what she calls earth seed, and that secular theology is a remaking of her father's Christianity. Instead of heaven, we have going to the stars, but it has the same formal structure where what you do now matters because it will contribute to something better in the
3: future. So I have I'm going to be really annoying. I hope I really
0: want to be annoying. Now. The
3: first thing I want to say is that historically, every time there has been uh, a, a kind of shift in uh, new technologies um, there has been an accompaniment of like utopian dreams right like new technologies are linchpins and conduits and vehicles for utopian dreams every single time and the dreams are vaguely similar usually, right? Like this new technology is the one that will push us over the edge, it will return us back to paradise, to Eden, it will, like, uh, get rid of the alienation that we're feeling, it will be more democratic, it will be less centralised, it will, like, redistribute power. It's true, like, all the time, throughout, you know? Utopian impulses, they're always there, you know, and they're always attached to something. And they tend to go awry because they're not true, right? Like, a, a new technology isn't the thing that's going to do that. It's not the thing, like we, we, we want to believe that it is, but it's not. Because the technology contains within itself politics and a particular way of being in the world and a particular power relationship and all of that stuff. And so this is the, so that is my prelude, but like the thing that I want to talk about is this idea of like imagining a better future, right? And, and looking to narratives uh, for um, ways of rethinking our relationship to the world and all of that stuff. I think that's like super valuable, right? okay great we can imagine a better future but like I think it's clear that imagining is one thing and doing is another right so um, I wanted to think a little bit about the power of these stories not because of the detail of them so much but because of their existence in the world right they're like an engine for the kind of connection and mobilization of networks and communities and you know, different ways of 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 doing of doing politics, right? And solar (laughs) punk is like a really obvious example of that. I'm not saying it's the answer by any means. It's problematic, it's kind of liberal, blah blah blah. (laughs) But like what's happened is like people have made this shared world and around it, which Mm. is the interesting thing I think, there is a community. And there are people making things in the world which the stories are somehow Mm modelling, but that's not the final story. You know the stories are just like on the way to making it real and the making it real is important because it's not going to be the utopian endpoint. it's not going to be perfect but it is going to be a step that you can then stand on and imagine again like we love imagining but you've got to make the imperfect thing that then you can imagine further from
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, it? yeah, that, yeah, know, Yeah, go for
1: it. yeah, for sure. It is perfect for that, what we just said about Octavia Butler. Yeah. It's so a parable of the sower rocketed up the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. First century on the bestseller list a couple years ago, 2020, I think. Mm-hmm. As that happened, and maybe even preceding it, Adrienne Marie Brown, who's an activist mm-hmm. from, from Michigan, from Detroit, I think.
2: Yeah.
1: She has a book called Emergent Strategy that takes Octavia Butler and makes an activist practice out of it. So we get this model of fiction narrative that then yields itself into activist practice. The second thing, there is a farm in outside of Durham, North Carolina called Earthseed. And it is a black owned farm that is based out of Octavia Butler's novel. They own the land. They have a community center. They are thinking about food sovereignty. They are thinking about resilience, about what it means for African American farmers to take back land in the South. There is also now an artist collective in New Mexico, the Earthseed Artist Collective, of artists of color that are again taking. Whatever they find in the novel. I'm not suggesting all these people find the same thing in the novel. Mm-hmm. They probably do not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yet, that, that speculative fiction, these are material forms. Art practice, a farm, an activist manual that then migrates out to the way that people organize and the work that they do at the everyday granular level. It's not a solar farm. Right? It's not Mm -hmm. a permanent eco village. Well, maybe it will be. Who knows what will become of that farm? But these are, for us as literary scholars, we talk a lot about action and books aren't going to march in the street, right? Um, Not all of them are big enough for us to throw through bank windows. (laughs) But these these sort of provisional models, they're doing the thing, right? It's in the practice of planning food, and thinking of the planning of food, not just we get potatoes or whatever, but this is an act of reclaiming food sovereignty and thinking about the racist apologies of the South and how you reverse them through the everyday practices of farming and sharing food and educating people and bringing them in in different capacities. Butler could never have predicted that that would happen,
2: right? There are, in fact, so many... Right, like actual existing examples yes. of precisely what we're talking about. Corporation right?
1: Jackson, where you have a,
2: Yeah. A, a or I a... mean, gosh, Karema Sol, Casa Pueblo, and, and Puerto Rico right now, who are you know, or getting back, I mean, not on the grid, not on, like, you know, Luna's, you know, that U.S. Canadian um, Mm -hmm. venture, right, who's been privatizing Puerto Rico to, you know, completely destroying their energy infrastructure, right? Like, there there are these, like, non, you know, local grassroots movements that are actually creating these spaces. So, like, Earthseed, right, Torema Sol is actually creating, like, viable... Solar-powered collectivist grids that are now powering hospitals. You know, <laughs> so like in the wake of Hurricane Fiona, this is actually happening. Actually, existing projects that that actually aren't only in response to disasters. I'm I'm citing Puerto Rico, but they also do have. I mean, and I guess solidarity is another example in, in the ruins, and, and maybe maybe that that's part of this that we're we're looking for answers in the ruins of fossil capitalism. And by the way, maybe this is a place where we could also talk about. It. I mean, you're writing about this, and I was thinking like the kind of the time that we're now in, we've been talking about the sort of Cracking open the temporality of the present, right, That's a beautifully, beautifully phrase. it means. That's walter yeah. Anyway. yeah. But I mean, I guess, like, I mean, you're kind of writing about kind of where we are now and sort of how we're, ima- rather than imagining this feature, sort of scrutinizing the ways in which we're understanding our present, mm. right? And I think that a- After Oil as a project, right, mm. made this really, you know, profound and critical move away from thinking in terms of impasse, right, mm. which is to say, like, Dominic Boyer's at a beautiful essay on revolutionary infrastructure when he talks about impasse or, or sort of infrastructure as necessarily a source of impasse insofar as we're only conceiving of it in a particular way, right? In terms of our presently dilapidated grid right um, like it's only a, a block between us yes, and a better yes indeed yeah right. um, and I, I feel like that the you know the first after oil school kind of in articulating like in, rather than in past like thinking about interregnum and then thinking about like moments of radical indeterminacy right mm-hmm. that was this really productive move away from, like, only thinking in terms of a kind of stuckness. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I love, like, a lot of what we've talked about is sort of, like, how we actually now move out into the world and, and implement, whether it is, like, using the art objects that, in fact, maybe aren't big enough to throw through a bank window, but, like, are big enough to to, to use in, I don't know, online classes um, marketed toward communities outside of the academy. I don't know, you yeah. know?
3: This, this is maybe quite neat, actually, in some ways. So I think where this kind of idea, this, this focus for me on okay so firstly we should we should talk a little bit about what interregnum means and it, it just oh, means right. um, yes. broadly a, a kind of rupture right like a gap or a chasm or a break between like the way things are now and some other way of organizing stuff in the future and the the idea of the interregnum is that we are now in this like in-between moment. And because of that, there's like space for people to make changes and for, to, to produce new things, new ways of living, new ways of thinking, that kind of stuff. Now, that's not true with a big T, right? That's like a model of, of, of the present that might or might not be useful and productive. And the the, the thing that I find, I'm, I'm increasingly finding interesting is trying to think of like quite banal, mundane ways of doing things differently in my life, in my work specifically, I guess. So I, I, I spend a lot of time talking, and it's really fun, right, about, like, really fun ideas, and we have loads of stuff, and, and as we've discussed today, right, that stuff's like quite inspirational in many ways, and and you reach your audience of students in particular ways, or other people then that can potentially lead to this really cool action in, in the world and so on and, and you can't really map that and, and you know presumably it happens and that's great and that's really exciting but but as a result there's a, a, a kind of overlooking of the fact that like I talk about this stuff in a particular way but then the thing that I do as an academic like the way I go about being an academic um, you know in, 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 in the day-to-day detail of that how I Organize conferences, uh, how I try and get promotions, how I uh, advance the internationalisation agenda of my university, like these kinds of, of, of things that you do as an academic outside of like making knowledge. How to do those things differently? And it's kind of a boring question in some ways, but I'm, I'm also kind of increasingly fascinated by it. And um, I think, and this is kind of the, the, the neat part, hopefully, is, is we started with said you of attachment, right? And I think it's from Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle, sorry to throw that in there, but like, that there's a bit where he mentions something like real, original ideas don't come from thinking, they come from practice, right? And it's like this really classic, basic idea where if the attachment and attachment theory is another way of saying that right like if we are shaped by our relationships to the stuff in the world Mm -hmm. and 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 then you know to have different new ideas or sorry before i say that like my ideas and the way that i think are going to be shaped by the stuff that i do every day as an academic right they're going to be shaped by the fact that i'm you know being a fossil-fueled academic Mm -hmm. to bring it back to energy humanities and uh, and and if I, and I can have certain ideas from that perspective, but maybe, just maybe, I'll have better ideas if I change my attachments in a, in a particular interesting progressive direction, right? Like maybe that's the way to have better ideas is to like change what I do and then better ideas will come as a result of my like new attachments. Mm-hmm. So all of these people who like live on the earth, who are like running this, this co-op, you know, in Puerto Rico, like all of these things, yep. those people will be having ideas that are quite pro- probably you know more radical than our ideas because we're not living yeah. as radically, <laughs> yeah. if you want to wow. put it that way, as they are. Does that make sense?
2: Absolutely. Okay.
3: Something like that. Yeah
2: one thing I, I just want to add to this before and maybe this is our part two of our, our podcast yeah, but um, in I mean they're both more, more radical ideas but they're also different ways of envisaging like futures right that are that I guess encompass attachments to like different forms of joy too so we, we had talked about this earlier and something we didn't get to talk about today but like the ways in which like as, as we cultivate new attachments right um, what sorts of like like how can we think about this is not just merely like we talk so much about entanglement and, and the ways in which we're entangled in fossil fuel infrastructures and that to somehow give that up is always understood as like this, you know horrifying like, forms of austerity right how do we instead like think about right joy in other terms and and think about like you know i don't know, come up with new forms of attachment right yeah, thing. yeah, like you, have, you know, you um, and that's what we didn't talk about today, but I, you know, like I want to spend the next six hours just talking about riding my bicycle or something, but well, like, yeah. how do we think about, um, yeah, like non-carbon or low-carbon forms of joy and community and, and beauty and, you know, right, that, that, that depart from, from that kind of fossil fuel subjectivity, if you will. And yeah.
1: also, I would... This is maybe the last thing I will. I will say. Reese, you have talked about how there is an impulse from intellectuals and academics. Impulse or anxiety. We do all this stuff. We talk about poetry. We get students to read novels and they fucking love it. And they write papers about <laughs> it. They tear their friends. <laughs> they took it out, but we got and back. then they disappear. I know, and we were happy to have met them. So <laughs> what we need to do is find a way for our knowledge to do something elsewhere in the world um, and yeah. we get these big vocabularies like living otherwise that I read is symptomatic of the inability of us to really think how knowledge leads to action yeah but you say that what we need to do maybe is to realize we inhabit infrastructures that academic infrastructures that must be important because the Koch brothers poured millions of dollars into knowledge production. Governor Mm -hmm. DeSantis is putting his entire political career on trying to crush the kinds of things that we teach and the protections that allow us to say the things that we say. So you have said we are in these Mm -hmm. infrastructures, maybe instead of thinking about how we go out from them and realize the poverty of our efficacy and what we do, Why don't we go deeper into where we are and make it do different kinds of things? So what we need is not more anxiety about how the way we teach Octavia Butler might yield something five years down the road, but a strategy for how we take the space of education where we have a captive audience of Mm -hmm. students. We have millions of dollars sloshing around in these institutions. What strategies would enable us to make those maybe against their own intentions and financial entanglements begin to yield the kind of actions and models and community formations beyond the academy walls right how do we strategize to make that happen and you've given us a little list of ways to do it i will give one little anecdote about this i taught a class a couple of years ago on um, Environmental justice in the Anthropocene or something. It was a really annoying title and I was embarrassed the moment it hit the catalog it was very long and it should not have been there, but students signed up. So that was right. great. I had two students in that class who were also part of the Democratic Socialists of America, the, the YDSA, which is the college version, mm-hmm. and I'm the faculty advisor for that chapter. I was also more active than I am now in DSA. At the time we had a series called Socialist Night School, and each session people would talk about different things, and my students wanted to take the knowledge we were producing in class through theory and the scene, through fiction and use that to talk about imagining a different future and doing something about it to an audience of socialists. So we developed an eco-socialist night school and a tripartite presentation. And we sat and talked to a room of 60, 70 activists who were not in the halls of academia. You know, a lot of these are working class people. Some of them are older folks. And the task was to take what we had done and speak to an audience who always wants to know, how does this help us build eco-socialism? Not this is a great idea, you know, it's very cool the way that formal involutions <laughs> do X, Y, and Z. And I love that yeah. stuff too. It's not just imagining otherwise, it's how do we make trans- transit work day? How do we make yep. tenants confront their landlords so that they have clean, clean air or whatever it is that they need in their living situation? And we did that kind of work. And I watched my students speak the ideas in a language that was fit for people that wanted action and we're organizing to do action. And that is not anything that I planned, you know, it's not anything that I tried to model, but I think for me it made me think about all the kind of unplanned, wayward paths that our work takes. And maybe in some ways we should have more conscious strategy about how we inhabit infrastructures that surround us in the academy
2: have more conscious yeah. strategy
1: and less anxiety yeah. about what is manifesting
3: after the semester yeah. closes. Because we can't predict that. Any theory that is divorced from a practical political program will have doubts about its value and efficacy. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and like, it's exactly what you're talking about, like, all this anxiety about like what good are we doing <gasps> in the world. And it, it's just so remarkable the, the way that we, we think we can like, change the world for the better. But it's like we, we're completely divorced from like the thing that we're standing in and on you know it's like yeah. that to do that to change that thing like sure. you're sure. literally a part of it we like to pretend that we're not yeah. physical so beings sometimes or <laughs>
2: something right? yeah, but like, and we're, like, like, we're all working rails, in this. just like floating yeah. around
1: and we have been told that what we do is useless <laughs> and pointless hmm. sure but we also have to fend off attacks state that want to shut us up and want to steal our job protections right so why don't we understand ourselves as the threat that the far right understands us to be and how would our strategies change if we actually Mm -hmm. embodied and amplified the kind of threat that they see, see us to be absolutely yeah